0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Roy's Cast, the official podcast of the writings of Yorkshire Society. We are your hosts, Johnny Farley and Sam Wright. Today we're joined by Stefan Ramsden from the University of Manchester. Stefan, how are you? Very well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for asking. Uh, Great to have you on. Stefan's here to talk about a a project he's been working on called Our Heritage, Our Stories. Uh, But first, Stefan, tell us a little bit about yourself. What got you into history? Okay, yeah. um,
1: Well, first of all, thanks for inviting me to this podcast. I've really enjoyed the other um, uh, episodes that I've listened to so far. Um, I'm a historian from the East Riding of Yorkshire. I kind of grew up here. I worked um, in the museum service here. So my first job after university was for East Riding of Yorkshire Museums, which is uh, based in Beverley and runs all of the museums in the in the in the county, apart from the, the city of Hull, so um, yeah, I worked on uh, Skidby Windmill um, re uh, reorganising the museum there, doing new exhibits, um, doing oral history interviews with with ex farm workers. So it was a great job straight after university, yeah, using my historical skills, um, yeah, writing text, arranging images and things. So I kind of got more and more interested in the history of the region through through that job um, after a few years working in, in local museums I worked for Hull Museums and, and East Riding Museums again um, I decided to take my PhD because I got, got more and more involved in the, the historical side of things rather than the kind of curatorial side so I did my PhD in the University of Hull again picking a local subject I'd, I'd become interested in um, the history of Beverly and its its kind of industrial heritage, and the fact that within living memory, Beverly had had lost this huge kind of industrial sector. It was a, it was a very big industrial city in the post-war period. It had uh, the trawling industry, it had a tannery, um, uh, a factory making shock absorbers and, and and parts for cars, and all that had gone, all that ended at the end of the seventies. So it got me thinking about the the kind of post-war economic and social kind of transitions that affected the whole country and so I used Beverly as a case study to think about the kind of social impacts of that of that history so that was my PhD um in uh, in, in the University of Hull uh, looking at Beverly doing oral histories thinking about kind of modern social history I, I worked for a while at the University of Hull in a, in a postdoctoral position, then as a lecturer um, before moving on to the University of Manchester where, where I work now, um, again in in kind of project work, uh, undertaking
2: research. And I think that brings us on to, to talking a little bit about that that current project that you're working on now. So if you talk a little bit about what Our Heritage, Our Stories is doing, so I think it links a little bit to, to that oral history background and co- the collation of data and making things accessible. So yeah, it suits sort of the, the Roy's ethos as well. So yeah. for, to talk a little bit about that project
1: yeah, that's right so I'm, I'm employed on a project called our heritage our stories and this is uh, towards a national collection project so it's part of a much bigger project which is thinking about how do we um, use digital technology to kind of enhance what what we might call the national collection so moving outside of kind of traditional archival collections, traditional objects that are found in museums, country houses and things, what, what else is there that, that really ought to be preserved um, and ought to be thought of as a national collection and how can we use particularly digital technologies to, to kind of do that? And so the project that I'm involved in is one of five ...discovery projects, so there's, there's a maritime history project that you'd be interested in some... ...and there are um, projects looking at kind of art that's kind of outside of um, art gallery collections... ...but my particular project is looking at digital heritage... ...and it's looking at community-generated digital heritage... ...so the kind of content that goes online when groups, say, do their the history of their community or um, the history of, a, of an identity group or, or, or something like that. They, they, they do the research, they collect images, uh, they collect oral histories, and they put this stuff online. You'll you know you'll get a website that the history of Hornsey, or, or, or the history of wherever. Um, so, yeah, we call that community-generated digital content. And there's vast ways of this stuff but it doesn't get used by historians. It's not easily found, it's not easily accessible, it's it's not easily linked to other collections. Um, so our project is really about finding technical ways of doing this, um, but also uh, raising the profile of this kind of material as a historical source. So. Yeah, it's a, it's a big project. There's, there's the University of Manchester, who I'm employed by. There is the University of Glasgow, and there is also National Archives uh, are involved in this as well.
0: Yeah, um, something I was thinking of when you were saying that, it's it's something that I've managed to come across as well in Roman archaeology in Britain. Because um, in, in through my research, I'd look at a bunch of towns and, and sites across the country. Most of them have a community website that sort of... Um, just ma- made by people that live there and they often won't have a, a sort of fully written up academic side to it. It is just the people living there looking it up for themselves. And in fact, it's something that I'm, I'm in, involved with in Bruff as well. I just think that's a really interesting kind of what you're saying about these community resources that aren't seen so much in the academic world, um, but are, are a big part of what these people have as, a, as an identity. Obviously, archeology span being much further back than the stuff you're working with. Um, Sort of speaking of that, what is the the kind of methodology that you're you're using for this process yeah. in in collating this?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's a, it's a multi stranded project in a way. We have there are about seventeen people working on it, each with different areas of expertise. The main kind of central thrust of the project is to um, develop a a pipeline using. AI that, that that pulls in this kind of content um, and enables a researcher to search it. So there'll be eventually there'll be a what they call an observatory based at the National Archives, and it will be accessible through their website. And you, as a researcher, will be able to search this material and, and link to it. Um, yeah, so it's a lot. A lot of it is um, AI specialists there are ai researchers at the university of manchester working on this there are um, research software engineers at the national archives also kind of developing this this pipeline my expertise is very far from that so um i'm part of what's called the history lab and our job is to show that this material is worthwhile and valuable for historians so you know, I can um kind of forget about the technical aspects to some extent because it's not, not not my area of expertise. My my job is to use some of this material, find interesting examples of this material and to use it to write interesting historical case studies essentially, and um and therefore advocate for the material because historians tend not to see this material as valuable or yeah often they're worried that if, if they cite this kind of material the next time somebody goes to access it it's not going to be there anymore whereas an archive a physical archive is a very stable thing isn't it and other researchers can follow your your research process so yeah traditionally images texts um archival documents found online are not um not accessed by historians and i'm trying to myself and the, and the other historian involved in this we we're, were trying to say that look it's great this is great material so yeah I'm writing case studies and things
2: And I think it, it links quite well to to, well, to to a number of projects that are going on um, that are really trying to engage with with sort of digital media and digital ways of d- delivering or hosting source material um, I mean for, for my own PhD research large register foundation who are Going undergoing an extensive digitization project, with a similar ethos of showing that this material's here, and by making it on on by placing it onto somewhere that's more accessible than just an archive hidden away somewhere down in London, you can increase that engagement and get more get more stories like the case studies that you're talking about being written using this information and showing how useful a resource it is. So I'm thinking like, what sort of your reflections on on that? Using that sort of digital material as an impetus now, because it's it's something that I've seen change even in my time at, at Hull, and obviously you've been at, you were at Hull a lot longer than I was. So, how do you feel about you that? It's obviously a passion for you about using that digital material moving forward. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a it's a parallel development, isn't it? So, at the same
1: time as communities are putting their own material online, professional archives are also putting their material online, and that, that's opening up scholarship to 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 a wide range of people isn't it yeah not everybody has the skills to to go to an archive all the time and money to go to an archive to to understand how to kind of engage with a with an actual physical archive but but most people can use a search engine can't they And, and, and i think there's a there's an element of democratization in in the way that this material is um being digitized and made available um yeah. So so so. Yeah. You 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 talked about how things have changed, even in your time. Like when when I started my PhD in 2008, I read a lot of books <laughs> in my research. Now I don't need to read any books yeah. because all the books are digitized. You know, all all the the journals are digitized, and it's becoming the case that increasingly the primary sources that people use. Have been digitised as well, and and, and re- historical research is almost becoming a desk a desk based activity, isn't it? Um, yeah, there's disadvantages in that. You you, you know you'll be aware that it, it it encourages scholarship in certain directions, doesn't it? Because you know um, collections like Old Bailey Online are available and fantastically convenient. Everybody then studies that source don't they and, and so yeah the, the, the availability leads you know can, can, can kind of send scholarship in a certain direction um, so yeah there, there are disadvantages to it and, and people also talk about the, the kind of serendipity of the physical archive and the way that you know you get a box of a, a bundle of particular documents and you're going through it and you find something else that you would never have found if if you didn't physically go to the archive if you were if the if the internet only brings you the things you're looking for, you don't often you often don't get that kind of serendipity, do you? So, yeah, there, there are positives and negatives to these developments. But the democratization is kind of what interests me. Think about Ancestry.co.uk. You know, people are, are doing quite serious, involved research, aren't they, into their families from from their homes so yeah it's not just the democratization of research it's the the democratization of production of the historical record that that we're particularly interested in the fact that a group or an individual can gather resources oral histories photos uh, put these things online and so instead of the archives simply representing kind of elites or middle classes it's 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 representing a much wider range of people isn't it so it's that kind of history from below yeah uh, democratic history—that's that's what I've always been interested in, and that's what attracts me to to this project in a way. I, I think history, yeah, it's changing very quickly at the moment as a result of digitisation.
2: Just for people listening, there, there is there is a, some kind of bike horn going on in the background. <laughs> I have no idea where that's coming from, so we just have to bear with it. We did break a gate on the way in today, so maybe they're repairing that. I'm not really sure. Um, I suppose one question that, that that comes up from this is is what kind. Of, Have you got some examples of the the sort of case study examples that that you that you're using in this project? I know you mentioned one about African stories in in sort of Hull and East Yorkshire, and talk a bit about about some of the case studies that are informing this work.
1: Yeah, I mean that's I often use this example as to why community generated digital content is is particularly valuable. Is a website called African Stories in Hull and East Yorkshire. Uh, It was established in I think 2017 to coincide with um, Hull City of Culture year. And, and what this website does is it, it, it collects lots of stories of people of African descent living in, in the East Riding and in Hull. Um, it, a lot of this is oral history, but it's also people posting their family stories and, and their family archives and images it brings all this material together and the East Riding and Hull is historically imagined to have been a very very white place and people scholars haven't thought really to look at um to look at black history in East Yorkshire but this website shows you that black people have lived here for, for, for hundreds of years there's a there's a black experience to be uncovered in in this area and you there are no other resources for doing that almost um, yeah, and and this this website brings these things together. And I, I was particularly interested in the in the oral histories that they've got. They've, they have about I think about forty stories on there. Um, and this this to me is a, is a really really rich resource that you, you just wouldn't be able to get hold of anywhere else. Uh, when I was doing my PhD, I was aware that there were very few black people living in. Uh, Beverly at the time when I was doing my research uh, there were but I knew that there were some but it was impossible for me to it's very difficult to find people to interview anyway so to find people from the group that you that you might be interested in is especially difficult so yeah the fact that the that a local group have, have done this work to me is incredibly valuable to researchers and that's that's just one example but I think it's a particularly good one of where the historical record is supplemented and, and enriched through this material um so yeah that that's an example that i often use yeah
2: yeah i think that that links to to, to a colleague of ours who's working at the moment with with, with a group called, called black history hall and uh our colleague lance is doing doing some, some oral history testimonies now they're going out online on on their on their twitter or x page Yeah. so yeah. just to give that a shout out here as well <laughs> if, you, if, if it's if it's if what Steph said has, has triggered an interest, there, go and find it out because they're putting out lots of information right now. As we record this podcast, so that's a little bit about the project as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. So, if we could talk a little bit more in depth about um, your role within that sort of history lab, and what, what yeah. kind of the focus of that group is, and how how you then feed in and tailor the the material that you're looking at and showing how these stories how these stories can be used. And if we talk a little bit more about sort of the historian's role within this yeah. sort of increasing digitization yeah. of, of, of of material
1: yeah um so so one thing i've done is is written written case studies kind of historical case studies and put these on the blog we've got a website with a blog um our heritage our stories uh it's ohos.ac.uk and and i encourage you to to have a look at that um we're always interested in in what other historians think about this kind of material so um yeah i'd be really interested in 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 any historian in any historian's feedback on this so if you have a look at the website have a look at some of the blogs that i've written um there's contact details on there tell us how you have used community generated digital content or or perhaps how you how what you feel are the are the dangers of using this, using this kind of material? And you know, why haven't you used it? We're, we're very interested in that. Um, so yeah, I've written these, these these case studies on the blog. Um, I've written a blog on using community generated digital content to look at different themes of generally modern history. So um, disability history is one example. Um, pop music history because I think that's kind of underexplored the way that in in the later 20th century um, voluntary musical activity through being in bands is a, is a big part of recreational history. So I, I, and there are lots of websites on that. So I kind of looked at some of those websites and pulled out some themes uh, and wrote a blog on that. I've also written one on what I term, it's not my term, but the term I'm using, the, the, the post memory of the Second World War. Um, because the Second World War is, attracts a lot of interest online And there are, there are lots of sites dedicated to the Second World War And lot, Think for example about the B- BBC People's War That was established in 2007 That's got tens of thousands of, of, of stories on it Generated from from members of the public, it's fantastic, absolutely fantastic resource. And there are many others that that, that often local projects where people have gathered uh, stories of, of, of wartime in in Hull or, or wherever. Um, so yeah, the, the Second World War is very interesting as a as a case study for for this kind of material. It's a it's a, it's a big focus for it. But what I, what I was particularly interested in, perhaps, was the fact that it used to be veterans themselves would post this material or at least veterans would share these stories but you know the the veterans of the second world war there are fewer and fewer of them all the time and increasingly it's the families of veterans who post this material and and they they post stories they post images um, and many of these websites act as a kind of memorial for, for kind of lost relatives and there's a scholar Marianne Hirsch, and she's used this term "post-memory" to refer to this—the way that that memories kind of pass down through families. Um, so that that's something I've become interested in, and, and um, partly as a result of my own kind of family history because my my, my grandfather talked a lot about his experiences um, in the Second World War, and I recorded some of his stories, and I became interested in the um, the what's called the Arctic convoys. Uh, museum, and they've got a website, and and people post stories on there. And I'm I've been trying to get my granddad's material together to to kind of post on there, and that that kind of drew my attention to this phenomenon of kind of post memory and um, online family memory, essentially. And there are there are lots of sites doing this kind of thing. Um, yeah, sorry, I don't know if that answered your question, but it's it's uh,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, it's it, it, it's I think you mentioned it a bit earlier, but it's this. Almost a rare impetus to have history from ground up, rather than it being filtered from top top down. So I think it's it's a hugely valuable resource and a way of collecting data that 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 tells the everyday story rather than the sort of headline impetus. So I think that's it's something that I'm quite interested in as well. Is, is reading it from as sort of low down the chain as possible to read up rather than just repeat the same sort of headline stats and figures from 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 top-down history which has been probably the the most common way of doing it for for what for a very, very long time
1: that's what interests me I, it really interests me that 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 many of these websites are established by people who maybe don't even think of themselves as historians so it reflects their interest doesn't it it's not a historian or a museum going i'm gonna go and collect these things it's actually what people themselves are interested in, so it really is a very democratic um, impulse that's behind these things, and you can really understand, learn to understand what what it is that people are interested in about their own histories, and yeah, so so I think the internet's allowed that, hasn't it? Because it's it's easy in a in a sense to publish on the internet, or it's easier than than it is to to, to publish a book or, or create a museum exhibition. Um, Although it's not completely easy, and we still have to, you know, there's, this, there's this idea that, that, that the internet completely democratizes history. Well, it doesn't quite, does it? You, you still need skills. You still need um, a certain amount of money and know-how to, to, to create a website. Um, one, one thing that we're not looking at in the project is Facebook sites because it's just it, it, it's too difficult to bring that material into the into the project because it's kind of private material. Um, but i'm i'm I, I find that really interesting if you if you um you, there there's probably about ten good old Hesel road sites isn't there all, all, all sites celebrating yeah. the kind of fishing industry in in hull and i I find that really interesting because to me that really is history from below. It's really easy for people to use people put photographs on there and then you get long commentaries don't you where people share their memories and argue about things or agree about things and, and find old friends and that to me that, that that is that is very very interesting um that falls out the scope of our particular project because of yeah the, the problems with privacy but as a whole it's this yeah this history from below this democratization that that, that, that really excites me about it
2: and i think as well i mean i don't know if- Talking about some of the issues, I suppose that come up with, with that. I mean, there's there's always been the sort of the the, the almost the Wikipedia phenomenon, which is how do you because c- I think the thing with, with a lot of academic history is sort of it's left to the academics to do because they have to go through X, Y, and Z ways of filtering the data and checking it and all that sort of thing. And that things like those free hosted platforms like Wikipedia don't have don't have that same level of scrutiny. So I don't know how how does a project like this sort of deal with with that side of things and how how do we because it's still I think that's why it's frustrating when you talk to people that have got so many stories is that they don't they often don't get the opportunity to tell the story because immediately it's sort of seen as well how can we trust everything you just told me so I think it's how does how do you find that balance between making sure that we're not you know it's not just anything that goes out but also it's still allowing those stories to be told in a way that that, that is often has not been allowed in, in years gone by yeah i mean that
1: that's that's really interesting isn't it i mean yeah there's there's no filter on 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 this material at all um to me it all depends how how you want to use it as long as you as long it's like oral history isn't it as long as you're aware of the of all the the kind of complex causes of of bias and distortion and and you know errors related to memory that go into oral history. You can use it, but you have to use it really cautiously. And and the same goes for community generated digital content. It, it it will be full of errors. It will be full of distortions. You have to understand what what those errors and distortions are, and and use the material kind of appropriately. And you know, as as oral historians, have often said that. The errors tell you something, the, the mistakes that people make, the the different ways in, in which people can remember the same thing can be vastly divergent, but that, that tells you a lot in itself. So, yeah, if you see history purely as a set of facts kind of put on top of each other, then it's... It, it, it doesn't work, but if you see history as something that's living and, and people are making meaning out of all the time, and if you're interested in that process of meaning making, then then this material is absolutely fantastic. But yeah, it's not gone through the same um, rigorous fact checking, perhaps, as material that you would find in a in a standard archive run by professionals who only catalogue it according to kind of professional levels of scrutiny and accuracy it's not yeah it's not like that and you have to understand that it's not like
2: that and i think that's i mean that's it's something that i've, that I've you know encountered and, and and talked about before but it's this almost if you expect it to be fact and fiction it's a very binary way of looking at history and data collection and i think what you were saying there about what what is said no matter what 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 the actual the factual topics that they're trying to to, to talk about what they're actually saying is interesting in itself, particularly if you're looking at an issue that's that's important to a place and what they've picked out as what they want to say that tells us directly about what they feel hasn't been said about enough so it, it, it's it's i think it's the message is it's not to look at it as facts and fiction it is to deprive it of so much value that it could offer to us and and I think that's what, what what you're saying there is about trying to read it in it's it's on us to read it in a different way and read and gain so much more from that data and not just look at it like 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 it has been probably done in the past
1: yeah yeah i think i think that's that's right yeah you you'd you're not just going to these collections of online digital content for what happened in nineteen forty two say you you're going to it for what do people think happened in nineteen forty two and why do they think that's important? You know, why have they selected that incident to talk about and not another one? And uh, yeah, how how has that kind of resonated across the years? And it's it's that that kind of relationship between past and present that, that that you're interested in, I think, when you when you look at this material. Sometimes you will get factual material that is not available anywhere else, of course, but I think where it comes into its own is this, yeah. Well, h- how do people relate to their own past, and, and what do they select as being important? That's that's where it really comes into its own. Like like oral history, I think it's kind of almost a. It, 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 there's a real parallel between this kind of material and, and oral history because a lot of it is people's own experiences, kind of c- curated and typed out in a sense. So yeah, that, that that's where it interests me
2: particularly yeah. it, it keeps history alive it, it's, it's not once that fact has been written down that's the be all and end all it, it's, it makes makes all topics that you, that you research constantly developing and constantly growing
1: but we've also got to remember that, that that just because this is community generated doesn't mean it's less valuable than no. something created in, a, in an official capacity because because we know that records created in an official capacity are often erroneous and there's often a whole lot missing from from it, you know minutes that are taken in meetings they they say, don't put this in the minutes yeah. so we you know we imagine somehow that that knowledge that's that, that's created in an elite sphere is more accurate somehow, but it's yeah it's not i I would push back against that as yeah. well
2: and I think that's that, that's another benefit of, of of a project like this where it, it makes because I think some of that sort of opinion of, of this sort of data comes from access to that to that material and if we can if you could you know through projects like like this one make so much more of this act of this material more easily accessible to more researchers then that will that breaks away those barriers as well yeah. by just by using it they can you then appreciate the fact that there's so much value in 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 material gathered from communities not just from, from yeah. filtered down from the top
1: yeah i think so and especially I mean, we, we, we've really, in, in the History Lab, uh, our heritage, our stories, we've really been looking at kind of contemporary history, uh, contemporary British history, history within living memory, and, and that's where we feel this, this stuff is really the, the most most valuable and, and where it's absolutely um, blossomed exponentially. You know, the, the, the amount of material that is available only online and only on these websites is... Uh, it is it, vast for the for the for the contemporary period, yeah. So that that's where it's really very strong, and where historians, I think, have to learn to use it. If you're going to write modern histories, contemporary histories, and you don't include this material, you're not giving everybody's perspective. I yeah. would say so. It, it, historians have to learn to use this, and they've got to learn to appreciate its particular strengths and its particular. Um, disadvantages, like you do with any source, really. But we live in a digital age; we've got to yeah. come to grips with it.
2: I suppose just, just as a sort of final section of, of, of this episode, um, just to, to reflect a bit more on, on on your sort of your grandfather's story, because I mean, it's a it is a, a Yorkshire themed podcast, and we've gone into lots of different sort of theoretical bits of history. But your grandfather's story is a very Yorkshire. Yeah. Grounded story, and I mean, it'll give a chance to obviously. You spoke about a little bit about about his life and work at the f- at the first conference that we did twin, last year. God, it feels 20? a lot longer than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it'd be nice to for listeners of the podcast to get a little bit yeah. more about about that story and, and how that has given you personal experience of and helped you get into that sort of that yeah. role.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something that w- one of the things that I'm doing is, is is showing that this kind of material can be used for, you know, serious published scholarship. And so, yeah, one thing I'm writing about is this idea of post-memory, and I'm really hanging that on a case study of a site called um, the, the Russian Arctic Convoys Museum. Um, and my interest in that... T- comes directly from my 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 grandfather's experience on the on the Russian Arctic convoys, so I'm kind of tying two things together in a way. I'm tying the the, the digital history, the community generated history, with family history, and using family history as a way of understanding broader historical themes. And and that's a, a bit of a trend in history at the moment. Is um, yeah, there, there are a number of historians who have begun to um, look at things like, say, social mobility through through their own family and use their family as a lens through which to to explore kind of broader themes. So it's, again, history from below, kind of micro-history. So I'm looking at my, my granddad's story um, and the story of other men who were involved in, in these Arctic convoys and how these stories are passed through families and eventually shared on the internet. So... So my granddaddy he was a miner in Yorkshire. He was he was um, he worked in Wakefield. He just started his career essentially. He was quite young when the war broke out. He joined up, joined the Royal Artillery. He was trained up in in manning anti aircraft guns, and then they said, "Oh, we need gunners on merchant ships." So so they put him on a on a on a merchant ship um, with a team of of gunners to basically. Uh, defend the ship against um, aerial attack. And his first, he'd never seen a boat in his life. And he went to the dock at Liverpool and sailed round the world in, on, on his first trip. He was sunk in the, in, in the North Atlantic. So just three days after his 21st birthday, um, swimming about in January in the in the Atlantic, he was very very lucky to survive. Yeah, half the people on that on that ship died. So it was a, a major. Uh, maritime disaster, his next trip was on the Arctic convoys, which, again, were were very, very, very dangerous. Um, he was on the ill-fated PQ-17 convoy, which was uh, absolutely decimated. You know, fewer than half the ships made it to the final destination. So, yeah, I, I, my, my granddad used to talk about this but he used to talk about it in very kind of truncated nuggets of of, of anecdotes. So everybody in the family knew that when he was in Russia, after he'd been sunk, that he ate raw fish. You know, these kind of stories are kind of passed down to families and everybody knows that, and that's a little image you can remember. granddad ate raw fish in Russia. But we didn't really know the details until later in his life, after he retired, he became really interested in in understanding his experiences and he did lots of research himself. He got books on you know there's a lot of literature on on the second world war and, at sea and he he got books and he researched you know i 've got his books and you can see where he's put little marks next to bits that relate to his experiences yeah. so he was trying to understand his place in the bigger picture kind of thing and he was in a, a thing called the Russian Arctic convoy club um and he used to go to all these meetings and he, he met old shipmates and he, he even corresponded with the submarine captain, the German submarine captain who sunk him. They had i I've got letters <laughs> that they exchanged. Um, they exchanged another letter, other set of letters with a Russian um mariner who, who picked him up when he was sunk near, near Russia. So he, he, he made all these contacts through it and, I I became interested in it because I did a history degree and I started talking to him about it and he, he, you know I learned all the you know what happened basically but the rest of the family never really knew and and until after he died and then they became a bit more interested and I I I could I could tell them more luckily because I'd kind of researched it um he did a couple of interviews in his life he did, he did an interview for the Imperial War Museum he was on a television program about the arctic not not the arctic convoys the atlantic convoys so i could signpost them to this material which which has been great but just that that phenomenon of what you know what what the people in their families learn about these really dramatic experiences what gets passed on and what doesn't you know that that, that kind of yeah. interested me and, and 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 it links to this project that i'm involved in because yeah, as i say, the the internet is becoming a huge resource for people they don't know what to do with all these memories and all these images and they, they 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 find something like the russian arctic convoy museum and they're like right i can i can put all this there other people can see it perhaps i can share it with my family who might be dispersed all over the place you know we've only got one set of these photos but if, if it's there on that on that website we can all we yeah. can all see it and use it so i'm kind of bringing those things together in a way in my in in, in what i'm writing at the moment
2: yeah no, but it, and it's that that family connection makes history so much more potent for for, for so many people, and if that helps people get into studying history or, or just like you said, looking up specific events and things like that, that's as good a reason as any to get in, and, and yeah. it, it, it's so motivating for, for, for that. And I mean, there's there's people that we've met on when I've been walking around you know, Hull and, and working with, with some of the guides, you know, half of those were former former seafarers that went all over the world and one of them wrote a book about his own experience, but was very he's very he keeps the book quite close to him and it's one of the things where it's like there's so there's so much to be told by so many different people. it's, it's finding ways to, to to collect that information, which I suppose is what the project wants to do.
1: Yeah. And the the, the project is kind of recognising that there does seem to be this impetus to share share these kind of stories online and actually they're making this this huge resource you know on the arctic convoy museum site there are 50 no there's more than that there's about 500 individual stories um and and they're all very very different the way people have decided to present them they'll be sometimes it's just a very terse kind of list of ships that that a relative served on sometimes it's it's pages and pages of narrative and and densely researched kind of material but it's 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 a great rich resource the problem is it's threatened isn't it because because a site like the arctic convoys museum um web may not last forever we imagine that we put things online and they'll be there forever but websites close all the time and especially you know the heritage sector is is never completely secure is it um websites set up by individuals they're obviously a a threat if you stop paying for the for the hosting then it's gone so that's another thing that 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 we're concerned about in the project is the vast kind of wealth of material that's there but it's very fragile as a resource um so yeah what what do we do about that is another another of our issues really yeah
2: well i suppose that collating it in a way is the websites themselves become not, not just not just historic not places of, of collation but the website's existence themselves is an interesting historical artifact in its own right so even just collating the the websites together and yeah. is as you say protecting them against that sort of fragile nature is is an important part of, of the work is just making sure that people know that they're there and, and and that they're more safe than they were without the project
1: yeah. i mean we we're not doing that at all in a, in a sense we were at the moment we're kind of at an early stage in this process of beginning to value community generated digital content work we're, we're signposting people to it hopefully enabling people to to search it more easily saying that this is a resource that historians should really wake up to because it's, it's 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 vast and rich we're not archiving it in any way no but there are there are internet archives there is the internet archive which, which, which I, d- I didn't realize stores copies of nearly every website that it's very difficult to to use that as a historian yeah. because it's you you need to understand code and things like that you can you've got if you know the url of a of a website that existed in the past you can find it on the wayback machine but if you don't, there's no search facility on there. Yeah. The, the the UK Internet Archive is better. That 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 that's kind of searchable and quite usable. But yeah, the pro- yeah, it, it, it's a fantastic resource. But the problem is that they're not fully fun- they're not always fully functional websites. The links on these websites don't always work. Yeah. Um, if you've got a very valuable historical website, it's best if it can be kept alive. Really. Um, but yeah we we're getting outside of my area of expertise yeah.
2: a little bit here, you know well, some of those well, <laughs> I could it that much if it's about coding i'll yeah. put in contact with my brother if anyone's interested but it's not me
1: <laughs> but apparently historians are they're going to have to understand this stuff because yeah. because especially if you're looking at history after 1996 you you can't possibly write history of the last 25 years without using internet sources because so much of life is conducted online Historians are going to have to come to terms with this and they're going to have to start learning a bit about coding or at least they're going to have to learn how things like the Internet Archive are put together, what's included, what isn't included. So, yeah, historical research is is changing really quickly, especially for for modern historians.
2: So I suppose that's probably triggered uh, uh, lots of interest from people that listen to the podcast about how they can actually go and then find these these websites. And I know you've mentioned the the project's website in the past, but it's probably worth reiterating it now where they can find the project and everything that's going on and and then be pointed in the right direction for these resource spaces.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the project is our heritage, our stories. The website is ohos.ac.uk. There's some of my blogs on there. Um, We've not gone live with the final resource yet because we're still building it. (laughs) It's a really... It's really experimental technology, and, and the, the point of our three-year project is kind of to create a prototype. Um, so, yeah, I can't even promise when <laughs> this will go live. You know, it's, it's very much a, a kind of experimental um, project. It's, it's hoped that this observatory will appear on the National Archives website. So if you search for, for something in the National Archives collection, it, we're hoping it will also bring you material that's hosted online by community groups that that's the aim but there's a lot of difficulty in yeah. in, in, in making that happen and and yeah that's these towards a the national collection projects they're all experimental they're all supposed to be taking a risk and and developing new technologies and new ways of doing things so we hope there will be an output we're not 100% sure there will be but but follow our website to to find yeah. out more
2: yeah and there's if if historians are out there you welcome them reading blogs and making comments and things we about really, that. We and... really, really do
1: want to hear from historians that, yeah, any thoughts that are prompted by any of this in relation to this community-generated digital content, any ideas you've got about how you've used it, how you, why you haven't used it, what are the dangers of it, what, what are the advantages of it, we'd, we'd really love to hear from you, yeah, yeah. and there, there are contact details on there yeah
2: that's great well thanks very much for coming yeah. on thanks thanks for having me it's good to be good to be back in Blade's house yes it's good to have a catch up as well <laughs> um, if anyone wants to follow you directly where can they find you specifically
1: um, I, I've got it, it's not called Twitter anymore is it it's called X X Rambles <laughs> Rambles yeah spelled R-A-M-B-L-E-S-E-D is my handle yeah
2: Yeah, we'll link it in the in, in the yeah. tweet for this podcast Cheers. that you probably found us on so yes yeah, so th- so thanks for coming on thanks and uh, we'll catch everybody on the next episode of Ricecast.